thanks for connecting with our online content at Holy Trinity Church in Richmond. We really hope that what we share with you will be a blessing and will help you to continue to grow in your knowledge and love of God. Through this series, Walking with Abraham and Walking with God, we've charted some ups and downs, haven't we? There have been great feasts and some epic battles. There have been moments of tremendous faith and examples of real doubt. We've seen joy and despair. We've experienced life and death and everything in between. And this week, we move from one extreme to another extreme again. We come to a wonderful moment of celebration and rejoicing as we see a promise fulfilled and crowned with laughter in verses 1 to 7. But sadly, that laughter is very short-lived, as a threat to the promise is identified and results in a time of weeping, verses 8 to 21. We know where we're going, let's pray. Lord, we ask again that you would speak to us by your word. We thank you that it is good and true. Lord, we ask this morning that you would help us to see how these ancient words might shape our lives for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God's restoration of Sarah is where we start this passage. God is building her up and being kind and gracious to her. It's a motif which we saw in the last chapter, and it carries through to this one. You remember in chapter 20, God used Abimelech to restore Sarah's honor publicly and to raise her standing as he brought tribute to her. And now we see in chapter 21, verse 1, that God visits Sarah himself, raising her honor again. Uh, Now, the NIV that we're reading doesn't make that very clear, but there are other English translations and certainly the Hebrew that make it very clear that God visits Sarah. In his grace, he's recently visited Abraham. You remember the visitors that came to him, and God was one of them. Through angels, God has visited Abraham's nephew, Lot. And now personally, he visits Abraham's wife, Sarah. And he comes to deliver her from what has been a lifelong, hopeless situation. Her infertility. She's been unable to bear a child. Remember in Genesis chapter 17, Verse 16, God had made a promise. He said, I will bless her and surely give her a son. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. In chapter 18, verse 10, Abraham was given more information about this blessing, about the timing that that promise would be fulfilled. One of the visitors said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Abraham and Sarah both laughed about it. Despite Abraham's fear almost derailing that promise as he lied to Abimelech, the king of Gerar, who then took Sarah as his own wife, God had now done what he had promised. He'd promised it 25 years ago, and it had come true. Abraham and Sarah, in their old age, had a baby of their very own. It was a time of great joy and rejoicing. This baby boy, this long-expected, miraculously conceived child, is evidence of God's trustworthiness again. 
And this fulfillment would give strength to Israel, and it gives strength to Jesus' people as we see God keeps fulfilling his promised covenant. From Abraham and Sarah's own flesh comes a promised nation. It's through this family line that they will be able to move into a promised land, and eventually the Lord Jesus will come, bringing blessing to the whole world. God made the promise to Abraham, and it was clear that it would be through a child born by Sarah that these promises would come to pass. And so Isaac was born. In obedience to God's earlier instruction to him, the baby is named Isaac, we see in verse 3, which means laughter. And he's made a member of the covenant household through circumcision on the eighth day. His name, laughter, sits in contrast with the doubting laughter described in chapter 18, verse 12. Now Sarah's laughter was full of praise and admiration for the Lord. She was exonerated. She could leave the former things and the shame of her life behind her. There are other places in the scriptures that we see this happen. We see similar responses in Hannah, the mother of Samuel. After a life of sadness in second place, being mocked, she is filled with exceeding joy at the birth of her son. Or think about the joy of King David as the Ark of the Covenant came into Jerusalem as God has promised. He dances and sings and praises God. Or another mother. Think of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. It follows the same pattern. In her old age, she was, uh, had her shame taken away, she says. She held baby John in her arms for the first time and felt as if she was restored. Ultimately, there's great joy that we look forward to as people come to know the Lord Jesus. And so we are pointed to that joy of people who accept God's promises and put their trust in him. We say it in our liturgy. There is joy among the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's from Luke chapter 15, verse 10. When God keeps his promises, his people respond with great joy. And so Sarah laughs. This heartfelt joy, it bursts out of her. After a life of infertility and being looked down on in her community, people think she's cursed or broken in some way. Now things have changed for her. Now others will rejoice with her and no doubt be amazed that she and Abraham have had this child in their old age. But sadly, Isaac's birth, despite the overwhelming joy, despite God fulfilling a promise, that joy doesn't last. The laughter doesn't last. So often the case in life, isn't it? That through human brokenness, moments of joy and laughter turn to weeping. Look at verse 8. When Isaac was weaned, possibly up to three years later, Abraham celebrates with a great party. We've seen his generosity in food before when he had those three visitors. Do you remember he gave his wife 16 kilos of flour to make bread for three people? And then he went and he killed the calf, and together he presented a whole calf for his visitors. It's in Genesis chapter 17 if you want to look at it again this week. Well, if that was a party for just a few folks coming to visit, you can imagine what this feast would have looked like as he celebrates the important milestone in the life of his son. It's a great party. Until we hit verse 9. At that celebration, Sarah sees something which sets her teeth on edge. The son of Hagar, her slave. Abraham's first child, by Sarah's own design, remember, 
is living up to the word of God in Genesis 16. God said there, he will live in hostility with his brothers. And that's already showing this early on. Ishmael, we're told, mocks Isaac. Now, there are different takes on this word, which is closer to plays with in the Hebrew as opposed to mocks. And there's some different ideas about what it might mean. Uh, Ishmael could be playing the fool. He could be mocking and making fun of this child. Or he could be playing in a way that has menace and danger in it, kind of similar to the way we would say someone was playing with fire. There's an element of danger or concern there. There's another way the word could be taken, which has a sexual connotation. Now, we don't know what Ishmael was actually doing. We don't have that spelled out for us. But it was serious enough to enrage Sarah, who demands that the boy be sent away, in verse 10. It is a hard thing for us to read. And so there are two things that we need to take note of to make sense of what's going on as the laughter of this situation gives way to weeping. Firstly, we remember that God acts for the good of his people. It was a major theme for us last week. It's already been revealed to us and to Abraham that Ishmael stands apart from God's covenant people. Now, God honors his promise, his covenant with Abraham, by promising to make Ishmael into a great nation. And we know that the Arabic people of our world today are descended from his family. But there is a limit to how much he will inherit. He won't inherit all of the covenant promises of God. They come through Isaac. I wonder when you heard the reading this morning and heard God's agreement with Sarah in verse 12, did that unsettle you? Did it take you by surprise that God would agree with her to send them away? Sarah has been motivated here to petition her husband, and there's a reason for it. The reason was to keep Isaac safe. And God addresses Abraham directly, telling him to do as Sarah says in verse 12. Why does God agree with Sarah? He agrees to protect Israel, sorry, to protect Isaac from Ishmael. He acts to protect the future that he's promised in a covenant, And that protection requires the removal of Ishmael from the family. And so Hagar is sent away with Ishmael into the desert for the good of the covenant promise, for the good of God's people, for the good of the whole world. In Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul takes this family strife and he draws a lesson for Christians. He's addressing people who've been influenced by the circumcision group, They've come and they're insisting that the Jewish laws be kept alongside belief in Jesus. It's a problem that he tackled constantly, didn't he? We see him write about it in letter after letter. We get an insight into his thinking in Acts 16, where we see that Paul insists that Timothy is circumcised. So here in Galatians, he's saying don't be circumcised, but in Acts, he did take Timothy to be circumcised. What's going on? Well, it wasn't a matter of salvation for Timothy, it was a matter of mission. Timothy was Jewish through his mother and grandmother, but with a Greek father, he had been denied the right of circumcision. Timothy had been Jewish by birth and faith. And now to reach the Jews, Paul allowed him to be circumcised to share the gospel with them. It was already consistent with his status before he became a Christian. But when Jews demanded that Titus, who was a Gentile, be circumcised as a mark of his salvation, Paul flat out refused. 
because Christian people are not under the law. Friends, we aren't under the law. Our salvation isn't earned by doing just the right things in just the right way. Our salvation is in Jesus. If we have come to believe and put our trust in him, then we are saved. And we receive the Holy Spirit the moment that we believe in our hearts and confess with our tongues that he is Lord. But in our experience as Christians, I think we live with a similar tension of the law and the spirit. Our flesh struggles against the spirit. The law still struggles against faith in Jesus alone as the way we are saved. We want to add more than that. We don't want to receive grace full and free. We want to do something that seals our salvation. And so we find our hearts turned towards observing religion, mocking the covenant promises in Jesus as we try and earn God's favor or acceptance through our acts. It's a trap that we can all fall into. So how do we test it? How can we tell when that is what's going on in our lives? The flesh is trying to rule over us when we make certain things more important than living lives which are obedient to Jesus. We will catch ourselves complaining and concerning ourselves about earthly things rather than spiritual things. We will find ourselves prioritizing form over faith. We'll find ourselves striving to earn approval with an ever-deepening sense of dissatisfaction with our efforts to be acceptable to God. And so we can ask ourselves some questions. Are we more concerned with maintaining tradition than sharing the good news of Jesus? Because if we are friends, there should be a warning light going on. Are we more invested in doing things at church in just the right way more than we're having our hearts and lives shaped by the good news, because if we are, our warning light should be going on. Have we spent more time complaining about the length of a sermon than praying for the proclamation of God's word, which shapes us and molds us and convicts us and helps us to grow in Christ-likeness and the power of the Holy Spirit? Because if we have been, a light should be going on. It's so easy, isn't it, to fall back on the things of the flesh. Unbelief will attack belief. The flesh will attack the spirit. Religion will attack faith. And here Paul tells Christians to cast out those things of the flesh that undermine and threaten the freedom that we have in Christ the one who is the promised seed through Abraham's line, the fulfillment of the covenant. Paul saw the principle of removing the threat to the fulfillment of the promise. And so he drew the analogy between the Christian experience that we live in and Abraham and Sarah's experience with Hagar and Ishmael. As a church, we'd be wise to take heed of it. God acted to remove the threat in order to protect Isaac and his promises because God acts for the good of his people. How do we remove that threat from our own midst? Well, if we're prone to religion over faith, and we all are at times, we must be asking God to show us the state of our hearts before him. 
We need to spend time reading challenging passages like this one in Galatians, which aren't overly comfortable and put us in the spotlight. We must spend time submitting to the Word of God, taught and proclaimed. We must make a priority for fellowship with Christian brothers and sisters, sharing life together and blessing them, and drawing one another on in faith. None of those things is easy, church. For all of us, there are other priorities, there are other things we could spend our time doing than hanging out with this random bunch of weird people. And that's just me and my family. There are better things we could be doing on a Sunday morning, aren't there? Except for Jesus, who makes sense of all of this gathering and connecting and fellowship and sitting under the word and being taught and singing praise and prayer. And so the call for us is to cast off those things of the flesh which trip us up and get in the way of that. God acts for the good of his people. As God works out his promises, there's another thing that we need to hold on to this morning. As he fulfills his promise, yes, he removes those things which could threaten his blessing. We encountered that concept last week as well. Do you remember? Abimelech closed the wombs of the women of Gerar and prevented Abimelech from sleeping with Sarah so that Isaac's paternity wouldn't fall into question. He does act in that way, but he is still merciful in his actions. He doesn't abandon Hagar and Ishmael. Yes, they're sent away, but he doesn't leave them to die. As Hagar leaves with provision from Abraham, she enters a wilderness, an uninhabited and lonely place, and she wanders until her water skin is empty. Parched with nothing to drink, she lays down her teenage son under a bush and walks away, unable to stomach the idea of watching Ishmael die. And the Bible tells us in verse 16 that she sobs. She weeps. We feel for her, don't we? We're drawn into the misery of her hopeless situation. Can you imagine a mother's heart in that moment? Maybe some of us know what it feels like to have a heart breaking like that. Some of us have had the gut-wrenching experience of sitting near a child expecting them to die. And God comes to her and brings her comfort. This poor woman who has been treated badly in the past, who now has a plight that looks hopeless, is seen and heard by God. Without him, her plight would be hopeless. But the God who saw her in the desert the first time she wandered, do you remember she ran away to try and escape Sarah's oppression? This is the same God. The God who saw her is the God who hears her. He hears her sobbing and the cries of the boy, and he draws near to her again. He sends an angel, verse 17 tells us, to care for her. God may have acted to keep Isaac safe by sending Ishmael the threat away, but he is full of mercy and compassion. God opens Hagar's eyes and she sees a well, life-giving, sustaining water, and she's given a wonderful reassurance. She hears that her son, who's near to death, has a future beyond the wilderness. He won't perish here. God will make his people a great nation, the revelation about God's plan for Ishmael is made known now, only after their ordeal. In this moment of misery, 
God protects her. God is merciful. God fulfills his promises, which bring an unimaginable joy to his people. Why are these same truths repeated so often in Genesis? This isn't the first time we've heard this story, is it? It's not the first time we've seen these patterns. They're repeated so often because those who follow God need these lessons to sustain us. In just a few generations, those who are descended from Abraham, the covenant people of Israel, would be living under the rule of Pharaoh in Egypt. For 400 years, they would live there as slaves under the rule of one who rejected their God and mocked him. After their release, which would finally come, they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They'd have no land, no place to call their own. They were without human security or certainty. They are vulnerable to the world around them. Eventually, they'd be called to go into the promised land and to wage war against other nations, to fight against their fortified cities so that they could take the promised land. And how many times does Israel turn on its heel in fear and run away? Twice Israel would be exiled. She'd be gutted in wealth and resources. People would be displaced and taken again to another country as slaves. Why are these themes repeated so often? Because they had the sense of asking these questions. Had God forgotten them? Had his promises dried up? How would they ever be a blessing to the whole world? Throughout the Old Testament, we see people turn time and time again to remember God's promise to Abraham and that he was faithful to it even when they weren't faithful to him. How often Israel replaced the living God with idols. And yet even then, God raised up prophets to remind them that he was with them. He was still at work among them, still fulfilling his promises. They had a hope and a future. Boy, Israel needed to be reminded of that, didn't they? That God's promises would bring exceeding joy when they were fulfilled. They're repeated again and again so that the people of God could live in hope with faithfulness to him. I know that some of us are asking, why are we spending so much time in Genesis with Abraham? It's the same reason, church. Because we need these same lessons to sustain us in a time of waiting a time of waiting for the promises of God to be fully ushered in when the Lord Jesus returns. We need these promises to sustain us. The Christian church has been waiting for 2,000 years for the release from living in a foreign place under a rule which rejects God. We are a people who have been exiled. We are far from our heavenly homeland. We are citizens of heaven. And we find ourselves stuck in fighting the world around us not to, con to contend for the gospel. Not with weapons, not hoping to drive out cities, but hoping to see people come to know and love the Lord Jesus. At times that is wearying, isn't it? And we turn to idols just like Israel did. We are led away from God personally and corporately. In us, the war of the flesh and the spirit rages. 
as we see the promise of God fulfilled in Jesus and we wait for his return, as the people of God, we must remove anything that poses a threat to his work of blessing. And we must hold fast to these promises which give us strength as we look forward to the exceeding joy that will be ours when they are fulfilled, completed on the day of Jesus' return. Friends, that's an individual work for us in our own lives as we rely on Jesus more and more, as we seek fulfillment and satisfaction in obedience to his way. And it's a corporate work as we draw one another on in faith as we set aside the things which hinder our gospel message, as we proclaim the promise of God and prioritize evangelism to the world around us. And that is why we revisit these promises to give us hope and strength that we have not been forgotten. Why don't we pray? Lord, we thank you that you keep your promises That is who you are. You are faithful. Lord, we thank you that you have recorded your faithfulness for us in Scripture and that you've even given us a glimpse of the exceeding joy that will be ours when Jesus returns and ushers in his kingdom fully. Lord, would you please keep that hope and joy before us? Would you give us courage as we seek to cast off those things of the flesh and live more and more in the Spirit. Father, that is an uncomfortable work, but we pray that you would help us to do it for the glory of your name and the extension of your kingdom. We ask it in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'd like to connect with more of our online content at Holy Trinity in Richmond, you can do that by going to our YouTube page simply by searching for Richmond Anglican Aotearoa. You can also touch base with us online at our website or on Facebook by searching with those same words. Friends, we're so thankful that you've joined us online and that you're enjoying our content. We really do hope and pray that God is blessing you through it. If you've got any feedback, you can touch base with me, zane at richmondparish.nz. Thanks so much for listening. Mm